Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books Network. Our guest today is Brian Clegg, a science writer from the mother country who is making his second appearance on New Books Network. Brian has written How Many Moons Does the Earth Have, a science quiz book which will obviously appeal to those of us who love science, but I think will also appeal to those who want to learn something about science in a short and entertaining format. Brian, welcome again to the show. It's a pleasure, Jim. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure having you on. Brian, what gave you the idea for writing this book? Well, I enjoy taking part in quizzes, but I'm often frustrated that there's not enough science. Uh, And to be honest, honest also, I sometimes find they get the science answers wrong and then the people running the quiz don't believe me. So it was partly that and also just because it's a fun way to get information across. The idea is a, a reader can test themselves and then turn the page, see the answer and hopefully get a surprise. Well, I got a lot of surprises, I got to say. You describe your book as being especially useful for pub quizzes. Most of us know what a pub is, but exactly what is a pub quiz? It's just a quiz that's run (laughs) in a pub, because uh, apart from having good beer in British pubs that's served at the correct temperature, uh, a pub quiz is a way, I guess, to have a bit of entertainment. About once a month, people come along, make up teams and take on quizzes. And I've used the format, the typical format of those quizzes uh, with rounds and then extra picture quizzes and that kind of thing. Well, um, I have to say that it's good that you said something about correct temperature, because those of us who have been over there and have drunk beer think that you don't have refrigeration and can't make ice cubes. (laughs) Um, And also, I got to I got to admit that. Um, Pub quizzes over here sort of have, you know, feature questions on the Kardashians. Mm -hmm. So your idea of a pub quiz is much more entertaining. And I had resolved not to spoil the fun by revealing any of your questions and answers. But I don't think that's possible in the course of this interview. So let me start off with the one that titles your book. How many moons does the Earth have? Well, many of the questions I ask have a bit of a surprise in the answer. But in a way, this doesn't because my answer is just one, one moon. Uh, but the reason I say it is that quite often people come up with different answers. They might say that there's no moons because the moon's so big it's really a planet. Or they might say that we've got hundreds of moons because the Earth's always capturing little bits of debris. And part of the reason for the book, I guess, is to, is to challenge people's thinking, to, to think things through a little bit rather than just have the obvious answer. Well, it does that for sure. I mean, I know that when I went through the book, there were a lot of questions that I felt I knew the answer to, turned the page and said, what? (laughs) Um, And that, of course, is the mark of a really great quiz and especially a science quiz, because I don't want one on which I get 100. And I don't think our readers will either. Oh, by the way, 100 over here is perfect score. Um, And um, 100 over on your side of the ocean is perfect temperature for beer. Um, But but anyway, obviously, many famous scientists appear in your book, as well as some who are not so well known. Everybody knows Einstein, but maybe you could give us a look at someone who is not so well known. Well, uh, thinking about it, my favourite in the book is a guy called Gustav Dahlen, who won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1912. And if you ask any physicist about him, they'll say, I've never heard of him. No clue. No idea what he did. And that's because his Nobel Prize was for inventing a better way of using gas in lighthouses to, to, to provide the light just at the time when electricity was coming in. So quite why he won the prize, nobody's totally clear, uh, but he, he's a great subject. Um, yes, I must admit that was an incredible name to me. And of course, when you see the list of Nobel Prize winners, you see what their discoveries and the things that they were awarded the Nobel Prize for. And they're all epic. And so you have to feel that the fix was in in this instance. 
<laughs> at, at least that's uh, that's what I would. But since we're talking about Nobel Prizes, one of the things that uh, always puzzles me and probably puzzles other people as well is we know the Nobel Prizes are the top awards in science. And although Stephen Hawking is unquestionably the world's most famous living scientist, he's probably the only one anybody outside science has ever heard of. He's never won a Nobel Prize, and I think our listeners might be interested in why you think this is the case. I think it's the difference between fame and contribution, if you like. But I think if you ask a physicist, that say Stephen Hawking is a really solid physicist who's made plenty of contributions to science, but he's not exactly in the top rank of his profession. That His fame has come primarily from his ability in science communication, you know, in writing great books, and frankly, in overcoming personal difficulties, rather than necessarily from his science. So certainly he's a good physicist. Yeah, the Nobel Prizes are often, you know, somewhat controversial. I remember one of the ones that always seemed sort of controversial to me was that Jonas Salk never even, not only did he not win a Nobel Prize, he was never even nominated for the National Academy of Sciences. And, you know, there's some things which are just incomprehensible about award uh, awards. And even though you would think that awards in science are about as objective as you're going to get, they're not always. I I think anything of that kind, to an extent, it's down to the way it's run. So, for instance, one of the problems with the Nobel Prize is it can only be awarded to three people who have to be alive. Now, these days, you know, there are usually lots of people working in a team. Uh, so some are like, CERN in Geneva, you know, the Large Hadron Collider, you've got hundreds and hundreds of scientists doing amazing work. But if a Nobel Prize is going to get awarded, it's only going to go to three people. Uh, and I think that can really cause problems. Yeah, I think when you're referring to CERN, I think, for instance, Rubia, who was involved with it in the 80s, I think he won it. Um, uh, and I think basically he was the he was the visible head of the team. So I think your conjecture there is probably correct. And as you probably have dealt with a lot more scientists than I have, most of the ones that I've dealt with are mathematicians rather than scientists. I've always found it intriguing that scientists, by and large, are liberal, but science itself is very conservative. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think part of the reason is that science is always provisional. It's, it's as good as the next set of data that comes along. And because of that, it needs a, a sort of amount of momentum to stop it veering all over the place as, as different, perhaps temporary results come in. But scientists, on the other hand, they're, they're always working to change the status quo, to challenge things. So in a way, it's, it's sort of a natural one plays off against the other, that science itself is quite hard to move intentionally because you don't want it going all over the place. But scientists themselves have to be trying to push it off the current path into something new. That's a very enlightening answer. And I don't, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about that and they give me answers such as, oh, most of them are academics. Academia is generally liberal. But I like your explanation of all the ones that I've ever heard. I like it best. So. <laughs> So thanks for offering it. You know, your book ranges from some of the very basic science questions that a child asks, such as why is the sky blue, to some which might be thought of as obscure. Obviously, this was done deliberately. So what was your motivation in doing so? Uh, I, in part, it was this idea of trying to take people by surprise. And sometimes it can be quite simple things that do take us by surprise. Uh, but also, I wanted the chance for readers to have a good range of topics. Um, and I, I was hoping that the book would be interesting, you know, from teenagers through to experienced people who've been in, in science quite a while. Uh, and because of that, that we would get some uh, kind of balance of interest by getting a whole range of types of question. But I hope they're all interesting to everybody. Well, I enjoy, you know, I enjoyed reading it. And there were a few which I must admit blew me away. And at some stage, I'm probably going to, uh, in this interview, I'm probably going to discuss them. But one thing that I really liked about your book is that one of the, uh, ever since I've been a child, I've loved reading science fiction. Science fiction was more sort of hardline science back in the 40s and 50s and 60s when I was reading it. Then it took a sociological turn, which I wasn't so wild about. But science fiction often becomes science. And I enjoyed some of the questions that verged upon science fiction. And I think our listeners would, too. 
Yeah, I mean, there is a strong link. In fact, oddly, I, I do have another book out this December, uh, coming out next week uh, or so, called 10 Billion Tomorrows, which is about the interaction between science and science fiction. And I think the interesting thing is that most people kind of expect science fiction to predict the future, but that's really not what it's about. It's more a case that science influences science fiction. It's obviously driven by developments in science, but also scientists themselves are influenced by science fiction. A lot of scientists you speak to say they got into it because they read, read science fiction when they were a teenager, uh, and a lot of them still read it. And it's sort of it's, it's, it's a, a real interplay between the two, I think. Well, I must admit, um, since we're talking about uh, a little about science fiction, um, there were a number of influential writers when I was growing up, one of whom was Arthur C. Clarke, who made an amazing number of relative, of pretty accurate science predictions uh, when he was writing science fiction. But I brought him up because one of the first science fiction books I ever read was a book called Tales of the White Heart, mm-hmm. which is speculative and amusing science that takes place in a mythical, at least I assume it's a mythical, pub in England called the White Heart with a narrator who is very much along the lines of Brian Clegg. So (laughs) (laughs) I don't know whether you're going to take that as a compliment or not, but it's meant that way. I'm sure anything linked to Arthur C. Clarke has to be a compliment. In fact, I think actually he he based that to some extent on uh, P.G. Woodhouse's books. Uh, P.G. Woodhouse did a a couple of collections of humorous short stories set in a pub where different people in the pub would tell a story and it would develop from that. And my suspicion is that the Clark got his inspiration from uh, from Woodhouse. Oh, I didn't know that because I've always I, I love Jeeves and Wooster, but I thought this was all that Woodhouse was. And so now you've gotten me to go back into the library and see if I can dig these things up. <laughs> um, <laughs> so thanks for that. Anyway, of all the sciences, and you touch on uh, you touch on um, most of the big ones. In fact, I think you touch on uh, on what I would consider to be the big three, namely biology, physics, and chemistry extensively through the book. But of course, there are questions on, uh, I don't want to call them the lesser sciences because that's denigrating them. But there are questions on geology, meteorology, etc., which don't, uh, you know, there's no Nobel Prize running around for geology or meteorology. But of all the sciences, I think biology has changed the most in my lifetime. Do you agree? I, I do think that's fair, certainly especially, I guess, in, in the, the impact on our everyday lives. Uh, but it, it, there have also been huge developments, say, in physics and cosmology. I mean, it's only in our lifetimes, for instance, that it was realised that protons and neutrons weren't fundamental particles, you know, although, although the Big Bang theory was accepted. So, um, yes, definitely, in terms of impact, I think biology is probably the biggest change. Uh, it's, become, frankly, become a lot more scientific, a lot more... Uh, it's escaped to some extent from the way Rutherford once said that, you know, all, all science was either physics or stamp collecting, meaning yeah. it's really just about collecting facts, whereas it, it has become, I think, much more of a science in our lifetime. Yeah, and I think one of the things that has made it much more of a science is that <clears throat> there's a lot more mathematics that um, that permeates biology than there used to be, because I can remember taking biology courses and they had virtually no mathematics in them at all. And nowadays, if you look at uh, biology majors in college, they're required to take two semesters of calculus and they're advised to take three. Mm-hmm. And some of the models in biology, especially if you look at uh, models for disease spread, which admittedly have been around for a while, models of what DNA is, etc. It's a much more mathematical science than it was in the past. And when you put anything on a more mathematical footing, it becomes much more predictive than it is. Uh, the predictive aspects are emphasized and the descriptive ones, even though they're not shoved to the uh, uh, to the rear of the bus, um, they're less to the forefront and I feel science is about prediction as much as it is even more than it is about description. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right in that. 
you know, a lot of the quizzes, questions in your book are numerical in nature. And as a mathematician, I love to see numbers used. But there were a few questions involving numbers that I'd be absolutely stunned if anyone gets, such as the number of electrons the hydrogen atom would have as predicted by J.J. Thompson's plum pudding model. Anybody who scores a point for that one <laughs> needs to get a life. <laughs> um, I'd never even seen this question, and the answer absolutely amazed me. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't really expect people to know the answer on something like that, uh, but they can have a guess, and I do usually allow them a, a bit of leeway with the numbers. I mean, to be honest, as I, say, I want people often to be surprised by the answers. Uh, so though, the, there's some questions everyone could get right. There are some that are going to be amazing. And, and the reason Thompson got it wrong, by the way, uh, he actually came up with the, the number of about, it would have been if he knew the actual values, 1,837 uh, electrons in the hydrogen atom, uh, was that he assumed all the mass was in the electrons, um, which obviously we now know is nothing like the case. Yeah, it, it, you know, even though, of course, this is one of the things that we appreciate science, even though science occasionally comes up with something ridiculously wrong, as in this instance, it has a very intelligent reason for doing so. And as you point out here, he assumed that all the mass was in the electrons, or at least the vast majority of it. And, you know, it's, uh, I don't know whether that was a natural mistake to make or not, but nonetheless, it just goes to show that even when science gets it wrong, it gets it wrong for the right reason. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it, it's the date difference really between science and pseudo, pseudoscience. Science does get things wrong, but it not only gets it wrong for the right reason, but it also learns, changes from what it finds out, changes, uh, is prepared to throw away a theory when new data comes out. And, that, and that's part of its glory, I guess. Oh, that's a large part of its glory because there are, you know, I think that you can rely, you know, mathematics is the one thing that you can rely on unquestionably, even though there have been theorems proved in mathematics that people later find errors in. But once everybody agrees that the proof is right, yeah, that's definitely correct. But science is willing to change, you know, it goes on best evidence to date, but it's willing to accept that it's wrong. And when you look at the uh, when you look at the range of what human beings has accomplished, that is a remarkable achievement in itself to have this self-correcting aspect that makes the subject better. It is. And to be honest, I think it's why there's often a, a lot of conflict between politics and science, because politics, fr- frankly, doesn't understand changing your mind based on evidence. It's more about beliefs than it is about evidence. Uh, And I think that's why you often get a clash between politics and science. Yeah, well, you get clashes between science and other aspects that are belief-based also, but we won't go there. Um, Anyway, one of the things that I also find delightful is how counterintuitive a lot of science is. Mm -hmm. I think there's something extremely important here about being guided by intuition. Yet there are books such as Malcolm Gladwell's Blink that tell us that intuition has value. Many scientists have claimed to be guided by intuition. What do you think is the role of intuition in science? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, intuition has to be hugely important. I, I've, I've just been reading a book uh, called Failure by Stuart Feierstein uh, on the nature of science. And he points out that the, the scientific method we're all taught in school really has huge flaws um, because it, it doesn't tell you, for instance, where does a hypothesis come from? It has this idea you, you get a hypothesis and you test it with the new data and that kind of thing. But where does it come from in the first place? You've got to have some intuition you've got to have some idea some inspiration and human creativity is just as important part of science as it is of you know writing a novel yeah that's one of the things that um i really hope that we're able as scientists to get across to the uh to the public that science is a tremendously creative endeavor in its own way it's just as creative as music and art and literature it's just that the medium in which it does its creating is a little more constraining, but it's uh, it's the creativity of human intelligence is the common link to all these things, I think. Absolutely. And, and maths as well, of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the plug. <laughs> anyway, you know, um, there's a very intriguing question in your book regarding Jurassic Park. As I say, science fiction does show up in a bunch of places. Perhaps you'd like to describe it and some of the implications involved in it. 
Yeah, um, I, I love Jurassic Park. And incidentally, it was quite entertaining. I, I did another interview a few days ago, and I was talking about Jurassic Park as one of my favourite science fiction films. And the guy I was talking to said, it is not science fiction. There's no spaceships in it. Um, <laughs> sometimes people have a bit limited idea of what science fiction is. Uh, but Michael Crichton, the, the guy who wrote the original book, his idea of getting dinosaur DNA from blood-sucking insects in amber, it was genuinely a very clever one, quite an entertaining one. Uh, but it turns out, in fact, that DNA decays over time, a bit like radioactive material does, although for different reasons, that, that it basically falls apart. Uh, and every 500 or so years, you lose about half the information in DNA, which means after a few million years, it becomes pretty well totally worthless. And, of course, to get back to dinosaurs, you're talking going back over 60 million years. So where it may well be possible still that we can get mammoth DNA and, and recreate a mammoth, it's very unlikely that we're, we'll ever, ever do it with a dinosaur. Uh, and thank goodness for that. <laughs> Especially for those of us who saw them, you know, watch them gobbling various uh, human beings as if they were just appetizers. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, this there are some things that um, are genuinely, you know, that uh, science has looked at, and maybe science fiction has too, that are genuinely frightening that I don't think we really pay that much attention to. I mean, one of the things that you'll see a bunch of is you see meteors colliding with the Earth or planets as in when worlds collide, which I thought was a <clears throat> which I thought was a wonderful science fiction film. Not not the 1990 Tom Cruise version or whatever it was, but the one that was done in 19 uh, in the 1950s when you you know the effects that are done today that are so massive they're so good that they're actually not believable. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, I'm sorry. sorry I, I mean, I, what I think people don't remember is, is if you look back at 2001: A Space Odyssey, one of the greatest science fiction films ever made. Watch that now; easily. it still looks absolutely brilliant visually. There was no CGI. That was done in the 1960s. It is all straightforward effects, no CGI at all. Um, and it's absolutely stunning. It is. It's, it's a wonderful film. And I, and of all, one of the things that I absolutely remember about it is I'd never heard Strauss's Thus Spake Zarathustra before. But if you ever chose perfect music, that was it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, science has obviously died in with technology, but each can precede the other. Perhaps you'd like to discuss examples of each, when science led to technology and when technology led to science. Do you think that the trend in the past was for technology to precede science, but today science precedes technology? I, th I think there's an element of truth in that, because when te technology was simple enough to just knock something together in a workshop and try it out. You know, if you think of the, the Wright brothers um, put, putting together their, their flyer, um, then you could build it, frankly, without much science behind it. But science then tended to follow to improve things. So, for instance, thermodynamics, really important part of physics, it was developed primarily to improve steam engines. Um, but now, if you look at something like I don't know, the flash memory in your phone, which makes use of quantum tunneling, the technology had to follow the science. You couldn't just knock up some flash memory in, a, in your uh, garage at home. And, however, you know, we ought to remember that plenty of science, both ancient and modern, wasn't really linked to technology at all. Uh, you know, neither Newton or, or Einstein had technology in mind with their work. It just happened to, to later on have applications. Yeah, uh, although you have to think that, for instance, um, when Maxwell was knocking out the uh, uh, the theory of electromagnetism, mm. there was a lot in the air at the time regarding the possible applications of elect of electricity. Uh, uh, yeah, sure, but, but I'm just thinking, you know, there are still always the, the theoretical physics being done, and there always has been, um, uh, certainly as far back as Newton, where it was very much going for the fundaments of the science and not really worrying about the applications. And, and that was equally true of Einstein. 
Oh, yeah. Um, you know, uh, recent events, every time there's a human-induced tragedy, such as 9-11 or the recent Paris shootings, we tend to focus on this as the major problem. But your quiz highlights some of the global scientific and environmental problems that dwarf these. What do you think are the major environmental and scientific crises we face? And is there anything we should be doing about them? And if there are things, how can we persuade people to pay attention to them? Ooh, that's a hard one. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> that's why I asked it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's hard not to put climate change up at the top there. And that certainly features indirectly in a couple of my questions. Um, and clearly, something we need to be doing is moving more to low emissions energy. Um, so using more solar, wind, nuclear energy that doesn't generate uh, greenhouse gases. Uh, at the same time, Thinking about climate change, people are starting to ask, you know, are there ways we can take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, actually reduce uh, the temperature in some way? Uh, but, but it's a very big problem because if you fiddle around with a system like the Earth, it's so complicated uh, that you might succeed in doing one thing and actually cause another problem. You know, if you think of something like El Nino, the, the, it's basically a water effect. It's affecting the, in the, the ocean. Um, yet it results in huge changes in the weather. And similarly, if we fiddled around with the oceans to somehow reduce carbon dioxide emissions, it's perfectly possible we could make changes to the weather as well. So it's, it's not a trivial problem by any, any amount of thinking. Uh, one, one other thing i just point out, uh, I mentioned sure. in the, the book there, is, is about water shortage, because obviously droughts are, are very serious issues. Um, but actually, there just can't be a water shortage on the Earth because there's more than 200 billion litres of water. So what I mean, you know, 100 billion gallons, or is that 50 billion gallons per person out there. Uh, and the problem is the water is mostly in the wrong place and it's mostly salt water. And both of those can be fixed if you've got the energy. So you, it comes back yet again to energy that, in a sense, cheap, clean energy is probably the biggest thing we need to solve world, world problems. Uh, I agree with you, but there were also a couple of uh, <clears throat> there are a couple of uh, scientific crises that I can't say we actually face at the moment, but that nonetheless have threatened us in the past. And one that has stood out to me, and I've actually written in it about in <clears throat> in one of my books, is I was tremendously impressed by the Carrington event because I think to myself, boy, if anything could change my life tomorrow. Here's something. Yeah. And it would change it a lot for the worse. And since you did have a question on the sure. Carrington event in the book, maybe you'd like to describe it and how you feel, you know, how likely do you feel another Carrington event is? And more importantly, should we be doing something about it? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, anybody who watched the, the Matrix back at the end of the uh, 1990s will remember electromagnetic pulses, this idea of sending out an electromagnetic pulse that, that kills um, electronic equipment um, and it's not fictional these things happen uh, they happen naturally uh, there's also been some attempts to make weapons that way but that's a different story and the biggest obvious source of them in our area is the sun uh, sometimes the sun pours out uh, uh, electromagnetic uh, radiation in, in a storm that hits the earth and when that happens uh, it could easily knock out most of the electronics around, it could take out all our satellites. And the, the Carrington event was the last time we had one of these big ones. Luckily, at the time, it was pre-electronics, but we did already have uh, people using uh, telegraphs to send uh, information from place to place, and the telegraph network was knocked out by this Carrington event. Yeah, and when you think about it, I mean, uh, just knocking out all the electronics that are part, our lives are so interdependent and so dependent upon electronics that um, uh, it's it's just something. I mean, every so often you hear some politician in the United States talk about the grid, and then they're immediately hushed up in favor of the latest, you know, the latest uh, 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 high-profile event in the 24-7 news cycle. Mm. So I... I'm glad that you did mention it in the book because I think it's something that we ought to pay attention to.
By the way, uh, just a little while back, you talked about the idea that there were 200 billion gallons of uh, of seawater for practically everybody. But the problem is that it's salty. And then <laughs> segue, segueing conveniently into a question in your book. One of your questions involves the amount of salt in seawater, and I found the answer extremely surprising. In fact, I found a lot of answers in your book surprising, which is part of its charm. Yeah, I, I think it comes back to the idea of being intriguing and surprising. In this particular case, it's kind of a trick question, and the, the answer is there isn't any, uh, in, because in seawater... It's, that's a trick question, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in seawater, the... the sodium ions and the chlorine ions that come together to make salt are separate. They're, they aren't together. So actually there is no actual salt in there and they come from totally different places. But I, I think that's important. That's the idea of intrigue and surprise. You know, when I talk to kids about science, I tell them it's about looking at ordinary things and seeing that they're extraordinary. Uh, for instance, I, I ask them how old they are and they might say they're 10 or 11 and then I show them how sort of bits of the body, like the, the blood cells, are only days old. But they've also got atoms in the body that are billions of years old and that have been in kings and queens and dinosaurs and goodness knows where before it got to them. And it's that kind of discovering the unexpected that I think presenting science should be about. You know, one of the things that your book, that your book and not just this book, that your books do that I think is extremely important is that there was a study made by uh, one of the American scientific organizations uh, a number of years ago. And it said that something like 75 percent of scientists became scientists because one key person that they encountered in their lives influenced them and showed them the charm of what it is. And so I'm glad that you go out and you do, uh, you don't just sit, you know, you don't just sit and write books and then uh, you get involved with people because it's on a people to people basis that you can really start influencing people to look at science. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have a, a program in, in UK schools where people go into the schools and talk about what they do. Uh, to encourage the, the kids to take an interest for their futures. Um, and I go in and talk about both science and science writing, because, because I think it is really important. And, and the great thing about if you're talking to 10, 11 year olds is they're all fascinated by science. It's only when they get a bit older, when they start to be teenagers, that a lot of them drop out. And if we could keep that fascination going, it would be amazing. Uh, substitute the word mathematics for <laughs> science in that last paragraph. Sure. And you describe exactly uh, the phenomenon that we encounter as mathematics teachers. It's the mathematics is the most fascinating subject to students when they're in the first and second grade. And by the time they hit the sixth grade, they hate it. It's uh, uh, it's really depressing. But anyway, let's get back to something that isn't depressing. And that's that a number of your questions involve space travel, past, present and future. Is this a special interest of yours? What do you think are the chances that man will colonize the planets or even the stars? Well, I, I guess it's partly my age because I was a teenager when the moon landings happened. And I think it was hard to be a teenager back then and not be hugely excited by it. So space travel, yes, I, I, and I love science fiction, has always interested me. And uh, at risk of plugging another book, uh, I wrote one a couple, of years, Go right ahead. <laughs> a couple of years ago called Final Frontier, which was about the manned exploration of space. Um, and I think one of the interesting things about it is we need to change the way we look at it because we tend to treat it and deal with it in funding terms as if it were science. And actually manned space exploration doesn't do a lot of science. You get a lot more from unmanned satellites than you do from getting people out there. It's almost more about defence. It's about a defence of the human spirit, about find, getting out there, you know, that really corny old thing from Star Trek, boldly going where no one's gone before and, and finding out stuff. It's about the pioneer spirit, all those kind of good things. Uh, so, yes, I, I do think uh, it's fascinating. I do think we'll get there. We, it's the kind of thing that goes through phases. You know, it needs a lot of investment. We will, I think, get back out there. There's, there's much talk these days about getting to Mars. Yes, I think eventually colonize the planets. The stars is interesting because they are so far away. I mean, you know, the fastest probe we've got at the moment would take about 75,000 years to get to the nearest star. So we certainly have to, a bit of technology to get in there before we're, we're heading off to the stars. Yeah, but of course, if we can get up anywhere near light speed, we get... <clears throat> 
you know, we get relativistic effects in and uh, you might not have to go through more than a few generations to get there. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, there were some questions in your book which fascinated me because I never thought about them. I, I knew that our universe depends strongly on the efficiency of hydrogen fusion, but the importance of hydrogen bonding and its relevance to the behavior of water was something I'd never seen before. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely fascinating. That um, In water, the, the hydrogen bits of water are relatively positively charged and the, the oxygen bit is relatively negatively charged and, and they attract each other, they stick together. And what it means is that the boiling point of, point of water is higher than it should be. Um, it, uh, so water really ought to boil well below freezing, uh, the current freezing point. And that would mean that there would be no liquid water on Earth. At the temperature of the Earth is, all water would be a gas. There'd be no liquid. And as far as we know, without liquid water, there is no life. So just that one tiny effect, hydrogen bonding, uh, has this incredibly important impact on everything. Yeah, you know, that's exactly the same thing that happens with the efficiency of hydrogen fusion. If it were 15% more efficient, what would happen is hydrogen would fuse so quickly that basically... <clears throat> that basically there would be no chance uh, that all the water would disappear and uh, all the chance, you know, the hydrogen would be gone, no more water. And if it fused too, if it fused too slowly, it'd never make it past deuterium or at something like that. And that the stars would be big glowing balls of hydrogen, but that's all you would get out of them. And so we're so delicately balanced. And not only does hydrogen bonding and hydrogen fusion do this, but your book points out that how fortunate we are to live in a universe which has suitable parameters for us. And that brings up something called the anthropic principle. And perhaps you could discuss it a little and what you consider to be its consequences. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a truism, but it does produce some interesting thinking. Um, and as you say, we, we live in a universe that seems to be finely tuned to our existence um, because just of small these small variations we've mentioned, and there are lots of other things that you could have small variations in, would mean there'd be no chance of life existing or planets forming or stars forming. Uh, and some people find it really strange that we happen to live in this particular universe uh, that is able to support our form of life and that surely is has a very low probability of existing. And the, the anthropic principle kind of turns this on its head and said, you know, we wouldn't be here to think about it unless it was the way it is. So how could it be any otherwise than this particular way? Um, and it, it's interesting for some people, the fact that it seems so unlikely that our universe should have all these detailed settings that are just right. It suggests to them there must be a multiverse with lots of different universes with all sorts of different setups. Ours just happens to be the one that supports life because we, we're here to see it. But there are lots out there that aren't like that. Uh, I'm not totally convinced about that myself, but it's an interesting idea. Well, that's the one that I favor. <laughs> so when we get into the quiz and uh, in, into a pub and go head to head, um, that's one of my fundamental beliefs. And um, there's a uh, there's a scientist named Max Tegmark who did a beautiful job of explaining it a few years ago. And I, uh, I was really impressed by that. And other things that I was impressed by is you talk about Olber's paradox, which I first encountered in Isaac Asimov's The Universe as well as in your book, and I was intrigued by how it was resolved. Yeah, I mean, sometimes the, the interesting things about science aren't just the science itself, but the history of science. That's why I love doing what I do, where I'm combining the history with the actual science, with, with people as well as the science. And, uh, I mean, the idea here is basically that the universe, if the universe is big enough, there should be starlight coming at us from every possible direction. So the night sky should be bright in every direction because there are stars... Which wherever you look, um, if you go far enough. And weirdly, the, the first person to explain it effectively was Edgar Allan Poe, um, who pointed out that if the universe had a beginning, and we know that light um, comes at a finite speed, then it can only have come a certain distance. So even if there was an infinite set of stars out there, we'd only see the light from the select few that are close enough for the light to have got to us in, in the lifetime of the universe. Uh, I just think it's rather nice that somebody you just wouldn't think of, like Edgar Allan Poe, was the originator of this idea. 
That's one of the things that I really enjoyed about your book <clears throat> is that there are, you know, uh, I, I believe that my life is richer as I learn intriguing facts. And I'd always loved Alan Poe. I loved the Raven and I loved the Bells in particular, um, the, uh, his poetry. And I never realized that he'd actually made contributions to science. And of course, there are many instances of people who are artists or who are recognized in other areas who've also made important contributions to science, but it's sort of dwarfed by what they did in those other areas. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, you can go back to, um, you know, uh, to the medieval times, and, and you'd often find there was an overlap between art and science then. I, I think one of the things is you could be more of a generalist back then because science has got so detailed now, you have to specialise so much. Whereas you, if you go back 500 years, you, you could be an everyman, you could have an uh, interest in all kinds of different things. Yeah, I, um, you know, also one of the things that uh, as a scientist, and I consider mathematicians to be scientists, um, it has conferred such incredible benefits on humanity. But scientists are often de- depicted, especially in popular culture, as impractical eccentrics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's a myth that's it's partly come out of history, because if you go back you know, to pre-Victorian times, uh, probably most scientists were eccentrics because they weren't. It wasn't a paying job. It was just something they did because they were sort of different from the rest of their rich friends because you had to be rich to afford to do it. Um, and also, I think you know. I don't know if you know the you know the TV show, The Big Bang Theory. There's an oh, element of, course, of truth in that geekiness. Let's face it. You know, so, some scientists are a little bit geeky, uh, and and some of us actually celebrate that. But um, I think the biggest thing, in a way, is that people outside of science sometimes are rather uncomfortable uh, because they feel they don't understand it. So it must be weird. You know, it's not where they would expect everybody to know about Shakespeare. Uh, The classic line is, you know, but they don't expect you to know what the second law of thermodynamics is. Um, Yeah, that saves you snow. Yeah. But but, I... I, Sorry. Um, I, I certainly, you know, I certainly agree. And I, you know, when you were talking about eccentrics, I'm thinking about Henry Cavendish, mm-hmm. um, who was uh, uh, responsible for weighing the earth and was one of those classic, rich, weird gentlemen that we, especially in the United States, seem to think flourish in England, but uh, was a very, very eccentric individual who made such great contributions to science in the 18th century. Yeah, to be fair, ben, ben Franklin has his moments as well. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, point taken. You know, I've used the expression cloud nine frequently in my life. So thanks for explaining its origin. I, I just think that's quite sweet because it's the kind of thing you don't necessarily come across in a, in a scientific context. Uh, but what it comes down to is that um, originally there were nine types of clouds that were recognized by meteorologists uh, and they were rated from from one to nine, where nine was the highest one. Um, so being on cloud nine meant you're on top of the highest possible cloud. And then they kind of spoilt it by bringing out a, a cloud 10. Um, and it was just rather nice that in reaction, I guess, to the, to the way people weren't entirely happy about this, they moved the system. So it ran from naught to nine. Uh, and so it went back to <laughs> <having> cloud nine <laughs> as the highest one. Yeah, I, I there's a lot of charm in your book and things like this, which, uh, <clears throat> you know, which relate things that we've heard of or just sort of, you know, come across our consciousness, but we don't really pay attention to it. And then somebody focuses in on it and tells us why Th- reading things like that is always a pleasure. But now I'm going to a- ask you to uh, to put on your predicting hat. Um, if you were to ask the pre- and you're a person who has extensive experience with science, I mean, you're voluminous. So if you were asked to predict what the future might bring in terms of scientific discoveries, what might happen in the next 10 years or so? And if we go further out the next century, the millennium, and we're going to hold you to all those predictions, especially the last one. <laughs> this recording will last forever. <laughs> Get it right. <laughs> uh, well, as, as Niels Bohr and several other people have said, prediction is difficult, especially about the future. Um, and I genuinely don't don't like to even try um, because the fact is, you, well, the only thing you can be sure about predictions is they'll go wrong. Uh, one of the things I, I love about science fiction 
is where things in it have gone wrong uh, as a prediction. And one of my favourite ones was um, the the author James Blish, who, who's mostly forgotten these days, but wrote some great books. Uh, and writing in the 1950s, he pointed out that you couldn't possibly ever have electronics in the atmosphere of Jupiter because the pressure there would collapse the vacuum tubes. Um, <laughs> similarly, I, mem- I mentioned 2001 as one of the greatest science fiction films ever. Yet, bear in mind, this was set in 2001, 14 years in our past. And what did it have? It had Pan Am op- operating tourist flights to space stations, then a moon base, then a manned voyage to Jupiter with a conscious AI uh, in charge of it. Uh, you know, as a prediction go, it was pretty rubbish. Uh, I, frankly, I'm mostly just looking forward to surprises. Um, one of the great things about science is surprises. One of my suspicions is that we're going to see several of our current fundaments of physics turned upside down. Um, things like the, the standard, standard model of particles, uh, which is almost right, it seems, feels to me like one of those things that actually could get turned on its head. Um, and yes, it'll have some elements of what's there, just as what Einstein did, took what Newton had done and, and turned it on its head, but still had the core. But it'll be looked at in a totally different way. I think the way we're coming at it at the moment perhaps isn't right. So I'm afraid I'm not going to give you much in the way of concrete proposals for the future because I, I, I'm sure they'll be totally wrong. Uh, but certainly we're going to see some standards of science turned on their head. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And <clears throat> one of the things that really impressed me um, uh, when, earlier when we when we discussed the idea that I thought that biology had changed the most in my lifetime, mm-hmm. and you mentioned that physics and cosmology had too, it occurred to me while I was uh, while I was thinking about that that certainly, although. We've all been uh, surprised that the scale of the universe is so much larger than it was thought, say, a century ago. What's even more surprising is that we've only recently found out that we don't know that we don't know what the vast majority of the universe is comprised of. We don't know what consi- you know, what dark matter consists of. We don't know why, you, you know, why there seems to be this explosive expansion. Mm-hmm. There's so much that remains to be uh, answered. And just one of the things that I plan on doing, I don't know about you, is I'm leaving my blood sample or a sample of my DNA behind. And I'm sure as hell hoping that it's not going to decay in another in another 500 years or so, because what I want to be is I want to be the science project of some seventh grader in the 26th century to reconstruct a 20th and 21st century math teacher um, so that I can find out what has happened. That would certainly be amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm certainly hoping that they do such things as figure out a way to embed consciousness electronically or something like that. I'm not counting on it, but I think that part of the charm of life is finding out what lies ahead. And and of course, human, uh, you know, human behavior is always, uh, you know, uh, can never be predicted. But I think um, I think the discoveries about how incredibly intricate the universe is and how it works on uh, on all sorts of levels from the micro to the macro is so fascinating. And I look forward every day to reading about new developments in science. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I think part of the problem, to be honest, with the way that we teach science is that it's so backward looking. You know that most of the well, almost all the science we teach in schools is from the 19th century, uh, and I really think we ought to turn that on its head and start giving them much the interesting stuff earlier on. I mean, yes, we do need some very basic things, but we don't need to be plugging in all this stuff uh, that bores them to tears. I think we can actually give a totally different view by showing them more about the context of science, more about the future, more think, getting them to think more about the way that science is going. And I hope we can in the future see a scientific education for children that's better in that way. I absolutely have to agree with you because one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, which you've just answered, is what can we do to interest more people in science to help them realize how important it is? <laughs> and yes, we do have to, you know, 
there is a certain amount of the past that we have to cover because we want people to know what the atomic theory is, why the Earth revolves around the sun, stuff like that. Um, but we also want them to realize how incredibly fascinating the future is. And the future is going to be mostly revealed to us through scientific developments because human beings aren't going to change that much over the next 100 years, but our perception of what the universe is sure will change. Yeah, that's right. I, I say I'm, I'm not in any sense saying we shouldn't have context, and, and I think we could have more historical context where it, it is actually getting people into it, how the ideas came into being. It's just literally pouring in lots of facts, lots of numbers, lots of equations. Nothing against equations, of course. We love mathematicians, but... I, yes, yes, right. Context, <laughs> and I, I don't think our education has enough context. I don't think it has enough of that looking forward. And then we, of course, end up with people in our governments who are making huge decisions on science and technology, the vast majority of whom don't understand science at all, because most of them have, don't have a science background, really don't know much about it, and probably thought it was pretty boring when they were at school. Well, presumably they have science advisors, but it's just not clear that these people have any influence whatsoever on policy. Yeah, yeah. Certainly not over here. Um, one final, uh, actually, the penultimate question that I would like to ask is your book deals primarily with the natural sciences. Do you think that social sciences will ever be on the same secure intellectual footing that the natural sciences are? That's uh, interesting. I, I think it's hard to see that they ever will be quite to the same extent just because everything is so much harder to pin down. And it's not saying that they're unimportant or that we shouldn't attempt them. But getting good, clean data from the social sciences is so much harder because, you know, you, you can't, say, take a person and put them in a box like we do with an experiment. We're great. Oh, Skinner yeah, did. That's true. <laughs> Generally speaking, it's frowned on these days. Um, but, you know, a lot of our things like physics, we can only do what we can do because we managed to isolate a very small part of the universe and see how it works. If we tried to do the whole thing. We have problems. Uh, and similarly, you know, as soon as you try to deal with, uh, I don't know, for instance, diet, something as simple as that, you might think it's very easy to show how changing diet influences your health. But actually, it's very difficult because there are so many different elements to it because you can't actually control it. And people lie to you about what their diet really is. The whole thing is just almost always so much harder to get good, clean data. Um, so I, I don't think it'll ever quite have the same level of certainty that you can get in the natural sciences, but I do think it's very important. Brian, it's hard to say whether I had more fun enjoy reading your book or whether I had more fun in this interview, but I know one of your next projects is 10 Billion Tomorrows, but um, I'm going to end the interview by asking you if you have any other projects that you'd like to tell us about and if you have a way for the our listeners to get in touch with you. Yeah, uh, I've just finished writing a book that will be out next year that I hope will interest you. It's called Are Numbers Real? And it's about... The, oh, yeah, that interests yeah. me. <laughs> it's about the relationship between mathematics and, and the world, basically. Why is math so good for science? You know, is maths real or is it actually... In mathematics, rather, or is it something uh, that just happens to quite nicely model what goes on playing around? Brian, I'll read that book, I'll review it, and you'll come over here or I'll go over there and we'll that debate sounds, it. That sounds no good to me. And as far as keeping... <laughs> With beer at the right temperature. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as far as uh, keeping in touch with what I'm up to, uh, my website is brianclegg.net. That's B-R-I-A-N-C-L-E-G-G.net. And that's got all details of my books, how to get in touch, my blog, and all that kind of thing. Brian, thank you so thank much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Care. 